actually makes me feel great to be part of this local food production system that is supported in so many ways. And so that's what I really look for in our restaurant partners, that commitment and that passion, really. Like, I love sharing that passion and joy of the food with them. Welcome to the Dig In Vermont podcast, a production of Vermont Fresh Network. We're talking with chefs, farmers, and others in Vermont's food community who raise the food we eat and bring it to our table. Today, we're talking with Krista Alexander, who owns and runs Jericho Settlers Farm with her husband, Mark. Krista chats with VFN's executive director, Tara Pereira, about how the farm's operations have grown and evolved with their Vermont community over the past 20 years. Learn about their roots as an egg and meat farm, the different ways they connect with the Jericho community, how they've built partnerships with local restaurants, and so much more. So come on, take a seat at the table and hear all about it. Thank you so much for chatting with me today and sharing about what you do and what you do at Jericho Settlers Farm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about your background. I know um, you and your partner, Mark, started Jericho Settlers a number of years ago. Yeah, we started back in 2002. Um, Mark and I both have biology degrees, and we worked in the fish and wildlife field for quite a while. Um, And that's, you know, that passion for sort of outdoors and living things is part of what eventually led us into farming, too. Um, We grew up, uh, I grew up with huge vegetable gardens. My parents had huge vegetable gardens, and put up lots of food for the winter in terms of veggies. We didn't have any animals um, other than household pets, but um, but we always had fresh food. We always had fresh produce. And so, and we always cooked at home. My mom primarily cooked most of our meals. And um, so I was always used to that access to good fresh food and home cooked meals. And Mark grew up on what I would call a small hobby farm. His dad had some milking cows and, um, he, he bred and sold breeding stock um, as a side hobby. That wasn't his job, but he did it to keep him um, in with his love of cows. And, <laughs> and then uh, they also had some pigs and chickens and gardens. And so he grew up in a similar situation with just access to good local food, fresh food right out the back door. And so we both um, eventually in our careers, as we, uh, we, we were out West for a long time, moved back to Vermont and, just started big gardens, right? And then also just started growing some chickens and some pigs and some sheep just for ourselves, for our own meat and vegetable production, because we wanted that good food, that fresh, nutritious food. And um, and it kind of our farming ventures sort of morphed from basically producing for ourselves to producing for a few friends and neighbors. And there was all this demand. There's all these people saying, wow, we can't get good chicken. We can't get good pork because there weren't a lot of smaller middle-sized farms doing a lot of meat production there were some but there wasn't a lot of them in Vermont at that time um it was just starting to get going and the whole local food movement was just kind of taking off and so um we soon found that we were growing chickens for more people and pigs for more people and uh, we went from um my mom's large vegetable garden to a one acre garden and then two and then three and between 2002 and 2005, uh, we figured out a way to make enough income from the farm that one of us could leave our non-farm job. And, uh, and st- we started farming full-time by 2007, Mark and I. And my mom also helped us out quite a bit in the early stages of the farm. By the time you got to 2007, 
what was your, what were you growing or how had it changed from the beginning? So you started, you know, you're, whether you're full-time into the business or it's really ready to go, where were you at that point? Were you at farmer's markets? Had you sold to a restaurant at that time? Sure. So no, we were still all direct market. We were doing some farmer's markets. Um, We had a small like roadside. Um, Actually, by that point, we had our farm stand set up at the farm, which was basically an attached shed to the old barn that we had uh, revamped. And and we had started our CSA uh, in 2005. We started with a winter CSA, actually, because early on, one of our main goals was to produce year-round to be able to provide food for our community year-round. And so uh, we started with a winter CSA, and then um, during that winter, I eventually left my uh, off-farm job permanently and could put more time into the farm. And so we continued with a summer CSA in 2006. And we did that model winter and summer for a couple of years. And then by 2009, we added in a spring season also. So then we became year round production and we had built a couple of hoop houses by that time. And early on, I was really excited about winter greens production just from a, a biology standpoint. It was fascinating to me um, growing these vegetables all winter long. And so we committed to that pretty early in terms of infrastructure and learning and um, and really branched into a um, a year round model of vegetable production. Plus we were doing, um, chickens for egg production during year round. We were doing chickens for meat production in the summer months on pasture. Uh, we were growing a smattering of pigs. Gosh, by 2009, I think we had several, maybe six to eight breeding sows at that point and, um, hundreds of piglets. And, uh, <laughs> and then by, um, then we had some sheep, a small, oh my God. <laughs> And then we also had some beef. Uh, we did raise yeah. beef um, with a neighbor yes. friend for a while. And uh, so we scaled all that up over the next few years through the like 2010, 11, 12. And then we actually started scaling those back down again. Um, and we can talk about that transition in a minute. But we didn't start selling to restaurants until about 2010. And the first restaurant we partnered up with was the Farmhouse Group. So Farmhouse Tap and Grill. And they um, we had actually been selling... Frank Pace was with them at that time, and we'd been selling to him through Healthy Living, um, and then and he switched over, and um, and then uh, we yeah went from there. We were supplying them with some beef, um, pork, eggs, and um, a little bit of chicken too. I think originally, and this just a tiny bit of veggies. Like the veggies were not our main wholesale thing for quite a while, um, and then so meat and eggs was kind of our way into the wholesale uh, venture, and then. Um, as we scaled those up, we we did quite a bit of eggs uh, wholesale for quite a while. We had a, a, close to 2,000 hens at one point, and we were doing three to 4,000 meat birds per year and, um, yeah, processing pigs year-round and, and beef several times a year, um, and then lambs um, every fall, winter, we were processing <laughs> lambs. Yeah, that's that's quite the production um, animal wise. Um, I'm going to just jump back just a a little bit and then we'll kind of continue on from that point. So regarding your um, you were talking about a winter CSA. Mm -hmm. Did you find, you know, summertime, the gardens are overflowing, but I wonder about like the wintertime. And and did you find that people weren't sure what to do with of the root vegetables or, you know, what you were offered. I mean, you have a really nice, um, 
weekly CSA newsletter with ideas and everything um, that it's it, um, it it allows people, I think, to be like, oh, what do I do with this type of radish? Oh, wait a minute. I can do this. Um, did you find that? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, of course. Um, so eating seasonally is not familiar to a lot of people. And, um, you know, you have to think about all the different ways you can use root vegetables, because obviously we're not growing a lot of like cucumbers and tomatoes and things like that in the winter, because they're so energy intensive in our climate, even though it is possible. Um, it wasn't a model we wanted to venture into to be able to offer that range of diversity in the winter because of the energy inputs that would be required um, to produce tomatoes and cucumbers and things like that in the winter time. So we focused on the veggies that we could produce with a smaller footprint in terms of energy consumption. And um, so the root crops are certainly the, the force of that in the winter time, but also the salad greens, um, because we don't have to heat for most salad greens like spinach and mustards and arugula. Um, we can grow all those without heat systems or additional heat. And the trick is getting them set up and ready for the winter you know, with low light conditions and getting them growing in time. And so, um, yeah, early on our winter CSA was root dominated. And, and we, and we also only did distributions once a month because we figured people didn't want, you know, 10 pounds of potatoes every week. I mean, there was only so many potatoes people wanted to eat. And also we weren't set up infrastructure wise to be able to do uh, regular distributions all winter long. So we started out sort of a very different system than what we have today. And, um, and now, uh, as we grew our learning, our knowledge about how to produce in the winter and how to store crops effectively in the winter, and we grew our infrastructure base in terms of how many hoop houses we had for planting and how much cooler space we had for storage and how much washing we could do, we eventually built a new barn so we have a winter wash uh, operation and not have to wash all the roots in the fall before we put them into storage or store them dirty and then figure out how to wash them in the middle of the winter when everything's frozen. Um, so all that infrastructure had to be built and that took some time to, um, to grow that capital and, and get there. Um, and now, you know, we, so we, um, but we realized pretty early on that obviously people weren't going to want just carrots and potatoes all winter. So what else could we do? And so we really made a commitment to learning how to do that as best we could in our environment in Vermont without huge energy inputs. Like I said, we, there are certain things we just said, no, we're not going to do. We're not going to grow tomatoes in December and January. Um, so, um, yeah. we now have a system where, um, we do every other week distributions during the winter. We could do it weekly, like we're set up to it, but that it's a personal choice for us not to, in terms of our workload. And, um, and then, yeah, um, we also diversified all the offerings we have in terms of salad greens and yeah, ventured out in the roots to yeah, some, a few new and different things. And obviously like a winter radish, people are probably like, Oh my God, I hate radishes or I don't want a radish. <laughs> and, and so it's like, well, how can you cook a radish in a way that actually you might find you like it? And so it does require a little bit of adventure on the part of the consumer. They have to be willing to try new things and have some flexibility in their cooking patterns and, um, and a lot of people embrace that. They're really excited about that part of it. And that's why they join because they're looking for something different um, and kind of get out of that rut of, you know, you go to the grocery store and you buy the five same things every week and you cook those. And for some people that works, that's what they want to do. And other people are like, I need to change or I need to do something different, or I really want to be part of this local food system. So I'm going to learn how to do it. And, um, and so, yeah, it takes, um, 
some adventure and willingness on the part of the consumer yeah. and some education and outreach on the, our end. To me, that's what makes it fun, actually. It's it's like your own, um, you know, getting your box or bag or, you know, getting your CSA. It's like, okay, so I have this, this, and this. What can I do? How do I plan my week, et cetera? Not everyone, uh, like you say, does that. But I think that this is this is a way for CSAs or a way for folks to kind of dip their toe into just like, let's try something new. Let me, let's support our local food system. Let me meet my neighbor, farmer. Okay. So, you know, when you, when you were starting off, you were raising animals, eggs, chickens, etc. At a certain point, you decided to cut back the animals or how, talk, yes. can you talk a little bit about that decision basically? Sure. Yeah, so we had grown the farm to a scale where we were doing quite a volume of output and we had a lot of different enterprises going on. So we were raising um, chickens for meat, for eggs. We were raising lambs grass-fed for meat production. We were raising pigs on pasture for meat production. And we were raising beef on grass and pasture for meat production. And we had a full-on organic vegetable operation going on. And so we had... Now, those are all basically could be separate businesses, you know, but we had them all under one uh, business and one set of management team, which was Mark and I. And we were at a scale where we either needed to um, scale up and hire more middle managers and be able to pay them well enough to keep them on for a long time or at least a few seasons in a row. Um, but in order to do that, we needed more output from the farm to afford to be able to do that. And so we were in this weird place where we were like, Mark and I were maxed out from a management perspective. We couldn't do everything as well as we wanted to because we just didn't have the time. Um, and we couldn't scale up until we had more people in place to do that middle management. And we played around with that a little bit in some positions for a few years and eventually decided that the model of going bigger wasn't where we wanted to be in the long run. It meant Mark and I would literally be more managers and more hands-off in the actual production. Um, and that's not what we wanted personally. We really enjoy the hands-on part of the work. And um, we really, you know, we like everything that goes with it from just the being outside to working with whether it's animals or plants, living things, um, the troubleshooting, the challenges. And not to say you wouldn't have some of that in the management, but we didn't want to get that far away from the, the details, basically, because we would have had to in order to um, create those roles and have those people in those positions doing the work at the detail level they should be in so that we could run the farm as a business <laughs> in the background, basically. So we just had to make that choice. Like, do we get bigger and hire more people or do we shrink so that Mark and I can continue to do the management ourselves as a team with a crew working with us, of course, but um, not have to have all these different enterprises with all these different focal point people, you know, working on them. And so we opted to go smaller and that meant dropping out um, some of the enterprises. And so then we looked at our numbers and we're like, what's the most profitable? What do we enjoy doing the most? what gives us the schedule and workload that makes the most sense for us and our family and our seasons and our labor force. And we went with vegetables because um, that fit into more of, you know, the, the needs that we had personally and professionally. We were talking about working with restaurants and your first um, partner was a uh, farmhouse group. How did you move on to having more partners, restaurant partners? How did that work for you? 
So that's a big question. That's yeah, a big there's question. a lot of questions in that question. I'll start with the last one, actually. How do we branch out into more? So as we were um, yeah. growing the business, we actually, you know, like I said, got into wholesale more on the egg and meat end of things to start than we did on the veggie end of things. And um, and that was something that we've scaled up, you know, pretty quickly. Um, and uh, and so we developed. So because there weren't at the time, like, so this is again, <clears throat> like 2010, 11, 12, because there weren't a lot of farms offering wholesale level meats and eggs. Um, and there weren't basically like as the restaurants were getting more interested um, in sourcing locally and um, we were, we were scaling at the same time. And so, you know, we, basically heard their needs and we're like, okay, yeah, we could do this. We can do that. Um, and we, I think, you know, we were intentional in talking to restaurants that we knew were already showing a pretty big commitment to the local foods and working with the local food system. And, um, and that were, you know, near in our community, we weren't looking to like sell to New York city or Boston. I mean, we were trying to stay in our community um, and so we, um, you know, approached some directly, like found, um, you know, went and ate at the restaurants, found out what they were doing, talked to the chefs, um, either cold call or walk in and talk to them, um, brought in samples and uh, showed them you know, what we had, what we could do, uh, asked a lot of questions about what they were looking for, uh, how they like to structure their menus, how they like to work seasonally or not, what, you know, what were they looking to do in their, um, you know, their presentation of their food, the quality needs they had, um, the flavors, you know, all the different kind of questions like what, what, how could we serve them better? And, you know, ultimately whether you're doing direct market or wholesale market, that is the question is like, what is your customer need? And yes, you can steer them a certain point to what maybe you like to grow, but if you really love growing artichokes, but only two chefs out of 500 want them, like that doesn't, you know, make sense, right? (laughs) Unless you have so much influence, you can convince everyone to use artichokes. Um, So, yeah. So, I mean, and that brings up another point is, um, you know, so how do we decide like, you know, first, how do we approach other restaurants? You know, I kind of answered that, but then like, how do we decide who to work with? How do we decide what to grow? Um, There was a couple of things we needed to know, or, you know, had to find out basically was, you know, what could we grow cost effectively that we could wholesale um, and at wholesale prices? Because there's certain things that either we just weren't efficient enough at growing or couldn't grow enough of that we could really offer at wholesale. It didn't make sense for us from a, a bottom line perspective. Um, and so that that would bring up the question of is it can we not do it because we just aren't haven't figured out how to grow it effectively or efficiently or because we just don't have enough demand to grow a volume that makes sense um, or is it just something that just doesn't work in our environment like artichokes for example you know or something else we're just oh it's too too troublesome of a crop it's too risky like it's so weather dependent or um, you know it's it's a form of plant that um, is really sensitive to different environmental changes and some years it works and some years it doesn't. And so, you know, you had to kind of make decisions on uh, what you could do reliably, high quality, learn your growing systems. Um, and so that's what some of the things that we look for now is uh, we've kind of, we have developed into certain, we've developed certain growing systems for certain groups of crops, I would call them like roots, for example. And we've, we've learned how to, 
um, you know, grow those efficiently through mechanization, through uh, volume, um, through how we built our barns and cooler spaces, you know, all these different things that went into looking at how can we grow roots, you know, effectively. And, and roots is a big category, but within that, you know, there's some, some winners, some more popular ones like carrots and beets, for example. Um, and then maybe some smaller players like winter radish, which we're never going to sell as many winter radish as we are carrots, but we can pretty much grow them the same way and handle them the same way as a carrot. So it makes sense to grow them. Um, even if we only sell, you know, 5% of the volume as we do of carrots, because it's already part of our system. At this point, are you just, you saying to chefs, here's what we're thinking of for the, you know, for your restaurant partners. Um, here's what we're planning out for the season. Um, what are you looking for? And then um, they would kind of like put in an order, like in the springtime where like in September, I know we're going to be wanting this or how, how does that play out? I guess. Sure. Yeah. So we, we, we make a point of touching base each winter with our primary customers, uh, wholesale accounts and having a conversation with them about, you know, what's working well for them that we've supplied over the last year, what's not working well. I mean, we take that feedback constantly through the season too, but we have a purposeful discussion in the winter um, where they, you know, where are they heading? Or is it, do they see any needs or changes in what they're going to be using or looking for? Um, we let them know, you know, what our main production areas are and what we're planning to do if we have any changes. Um, but also, if, you know, we do have requests and they'll say, oh, well, could you grow, you know, endive for us? And 10 years ago when I was starting out, I said, sure, I'll grow endive. And I tried it and I grew it for a few years. And then after a while, I was like, you know, this isn't making sense for us anymore. And so now when they ask me, I say, no, I won't grow endive. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, because I know now it doesn't work in my system. It's not where I want to put my focus. Um, and, um, and so, um, you know, and I know there's a lot of other farms of in you know in the market that pr probably yeah. can very grow and dive great. So that you know, I'm I don't need to fill that need for every restaurant. Um, so yeah, so part of it is um, knowing what our our boundaries are in terms of our production capabilities. But I am willing to try new things. Like we did grow a couple new products this year. Um, and we tried them out pretty small, like, you know, we put in a hundred bed feet of this cream that, um, a, a customer was looking for and we tried it out and it worked. And so we did some successions and got bigger and bigger depending on what their need was and offered it to a few other, uh, food service type folks and restaurants. And, um, and they, you know, they're like, yeah, that works for us too. And so I was like, okay, cool. Now we have a new product and we figured out how to grow it. And it's not that different in our system. Like it has the same seeding equipment and the same harvest equipment and the same washing equipment as all our other salad greens. So it's just a different seed and a slightly different spacing and bed layout than the other ones um, that we're already doing. So that one worked in our system and it filled a particular need for the customer um, without having to reinvent a whole different production system for us. And when you saw your Jericho Settlers on a menu for the first time, how did that make you feel? Yeah, that's really cool. I still love it when I see it. And it just, it makes me feel great to be part of this local food production system that is supported in so many ways. And so that's what I really look for in our restaurant partners, that commitment and that passion, really. Like, I love sharing that passion and joy of the food with them. Um, I make a point, like, I do a fair amount of our deliveries sometimes because we just don't have 
people available, but also just to make a point to be out there and meet with the chef and other staff at the restaurants and just have those casual conversations, um, you know, about, Hey, how's the season going? How's the, you know, how's the restaurant going? What's working great for you? Uh, what are some new things you're trying? And, and we have, you know, just those off the cuff kind of conversations. And I learn a lot from those and also just being in their space and kind of seeing how they work and, you know, understanding both their limitations and their um, capabilities in terms of, you know, the space they're utilizing or, um, or the customer base or whatever it might be that they're working with. And, and then of course, COVID was a whole nother, you know, layer of complexity um, and especially on the restaurant. Oh Oh gosh. Yeah. And so like, it was, it's been really fascinating watching the restaurants um, work through and recover, or in some cases not from, um, from the shutdowns and, um, and, um, and seeing some parallels, you know, and sort of like, um, sort of a lot of the choices and changes that they had to make in, in that time. So in, in terms of us too, like, you know, the labor market being a huge one that we both share the issue of, um, very challenging labor market and how mm-hmm. both or both types of our businesses have had to adapt to that. The thing that allowed us to keep operating smoothly in that time is that we already had quite a diversified market base. So we had um, within our wholesale accounts, we had grocery stores, institutions like schools and hospitals and, um, and restaurants and some caterers and, you know, similar food service businesses. Um, and then we also had our CSA and our farm stand. And just sort of like in summary, there are some exceptions, but in summary, our restaurant accounts shut down. I mean, obviously some kept going at some level, but for the most part, those sales tanked completely and quickly. And um, we had to make some choices really rapidly in March and April because we're about to go into our main production season. And we honestly, you know, we already had plants in the greenhouse started and (laughs) all that kind of stuff going. Um, And so... um, we uh, at the same time at the same time the restaurants were um, shutting down. Our CSA demand was skyrocketing, and our farm stand demand was skyrocketing. And so I basically made the decision to kind of keep on the same course in terms of production, and just shunt a lot of the production that would have gone to the restaurants into the CSA and the farm stand. And there's a few things we didn't grow, like that might have been specific for certain restaurants or um, or certain type of way of growing or processing something that might have been specific for a restaurant that we no longer did. But in the main categories of what we produce, it pretty much stayed the same. And our volume um, at that time in terms of production, it was more set by how many people I have on staff and how many I could hire and how much food I could move through my wash system at any given time or week ver- um, than it was by customer. Of course, of course. Um, and, and so, you know, we're on the other side of things. How have you changed the way that, you know, you've worked with chefs? Was it nice to kind of, you know, you were talking about that driving and having those face-to-face conversations and, and checking in and, that's a very um, different type of interaction versus having folks come to the farm to pick up their CSA and having that sort of interaction with the public. What do you do now that you didn't do that? I don't think we've changed things drastically um, <laughs> in terms of pre-pandemic versus post, in terms of our relationships with the restaurants. it's I will say that, I mean, we did commit though to like when they were ready, when they were reopening and coming back, we did commit to making sure we could get product to them. 
because, you know, it was hard enough what they were going through and they're trying to reopen than for them not to be able to access the product that they were expecting. And so, um, our, you know, we're a, big, we're a big enough scale that we have a little flexibility in that. So for example, in a given week, if, you know, a restaurant orders less than we might've expected or more than we might've expected, we, we can usually make it work um, because we can just shift around some of our other, our other ways of marketing product. And honestly, when you're producing like a thousand pounds of salad greens a week, if you're off by 20 pounds or you, you know, you overproduce 50 pounds, that's not a big deal. You know, we donate it and it goes out the door. So we always try to make sure we're overproducing um, as much as we can, not, you know, like not as much as we can overproduce, but always trying to produce yeah. a little bit more than what we think our market's going to need, you know, within a certain limitation or obviously we don't want to be doubled or anything like that. But, um, and then we, we do a fair amount of, of donation and most years, this year's an exception because we lost so much crop this summer, but, um, we normally, um, are donating every of of year. So, yeah, it, it's, it has been a horribly wet summer. Um, and, uh, I know that you, um, you, your Richmond, uh, farm part that your Richmond area, um, cause you're the other part is of course in Jericho, but was, um, was that greens that you lost or the flooding kind of hit that part of the farm, right? Yes. Yeah. We had 15 acres in production. Well, we probably had, yeah, we had close to 15 in production at that, at the time of the flood and some in cover crop, of course. And, um, the main loss was our summer carrot and beet production. So we had several acres of each of those growing and they were just a week or two away from harvest. And so we'd already put everything into those crops in terms of the costs of producing them. Um, but we didn't get any of the sales of those crops. And then we lost our main potato crop because you have to plant those um, in May or June and in order to have a winter crop. So that crop, yeah. um, we lost that completely. So we don't have any winter potatoes Um we did have an earlier crop that we grow in our houses uh, of potatoes that we had, you know, through midsummer, but we, uh, we won't have a winter crop. We have a very, well, we'll have a very small one. We, we planted late, like after the flood, we planted in a hoop house, a couple spots that weren't growing anything at the time. We threw some seed potatoes in really quick and they are um, flowering now. So we might have some small new potatoes <laughs> going into the winter, but we won't have okay, that. Okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll have enough for the CSA, but we won't be wholesaling potatoes. <laughs> um, so yeah. So our main losses so, are our root crops. We did lose salad greens too, but um, the, the bigger value was in yeah. the root crop loss. What is your favorite thing to, you have so many things that you grow, whether it be, what do you have a particular favorite? And it can be a very specific type. Is it like a type of potato or a carrot? But I'm curious, like, what do you really, um, when you harvest, you're like super satisfied, like, yes, this is fantastic. Or is it all of it, you know? Yeah, well, so, I mean, I love them all, but what I enjoy the most in terms of producing is that first harvest of a crop that you haven't had for a few months. So like the first cucumber or the first cherry tomato, like when those plants are like in their full glory and just starting to produce it's it's really satisfying and and they taste amazing because you haven't eaten a fresh cucumber for you know five months or whatever and um you're back finally <laughs> right <laughs> <you> taste amazing <laughs> that's our season that's the year in vermont and eating seasonally and that's why it tastes just you know i don't want to say not everything's sweet but it's just so um you, you miss that like good a good summer tomato right you know and and uh just not the same when 
um, in the, why would you do it in the winter? Cause in August or September, it's awesome. Right. Um, so what's next? What do you, you know, when, when I've been to your farm, it, it's so, um, well, I've always, I've been there on CSA days, so it's quite lively with the people in the cutting garden, the flowers and herbs, and, um, you have a farm store, of course, and, um, I feel like there's other little things going on that there's an art gallery. Yes. What, are, yeah. what yeah, else do you mother, have at the farm? Yeah. My mother runs an art gallery. There's, um, the Emilia Groupie gallery, which was, um, Emil Groupie is my grandfather. And so she has a collection of his work. Um, on permanent display there and then she also features regional and local artists that have rotating exhibits there and some have some uh, product for sale there all the time and uh, yeah she she runs that it's kind of a um, her her passion and interest from having grown up in an artist's family and she carries that on and my sister is uh, finding her career as an artist now too and so um, that's kind of a family collaboration there and then um, you know we um, they're two separate businesses, but on the same property. Um, the farm in Jericho is located on the property where I grew up. My parents purchased in 1960 from a retiring dairy farmer. And it, they didn't uh, run a commercial farm there by any means as I was growing up. We had, like I said, some pets and backyard horses but um, and big vegetable gardens. But they leased out the land to uh, so for hay, hay production, basically. And what is, what is your mom think? Like, that's quite a, it's quite a change, right? From when you were growing up. I mean, still you had some animals, but not like the amount of, um, well, vegetable production and all of that. And what is your, um, I mean, you know, you were talking about art and I, I seem to recall there's a, the chicken on the side. There's also some art on the buildings, right? Yeah, that's a mural that was done by artist Mary Lacey. And she was starting out. Um, her career as a muralist and was doing some chickens on barns in Jericho. She did her parents' barn and she <laughs> did our barn. And and then she got um, um, some big job contract offers for some murals in other parts of the country and ended up uh, traveling off to do those. And um, I don't know if the chicken series ever got completed, but, um, but we are blessed to have these amazing chickens on the side of the barn that are uh, a fun, a fun feature. And, um, and, and yeah, just an amazing piece of art. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah. supporting the arts, um, you know, has always been an important part of our family and um, something that is uh, of, of interest to us. And um, and then and then for me, you know, um, food production in its own in some ways is art as much as it is science and business, and uh, has that component of creativity and challenges to it that that I enjoy. But there was one other point I wanted to get back to, if we have a second. Um, you were asking me earlier about, like, maybe new farmers and getting into wholesale and restaurants and, like, what, you know, to to think about or, and maybe what what the restaurants yeah. can think about in terms of being part of the local food system. And um, the one thing that, from a, farm, from a farm business perspective, that we tried to really commit to early on was getting to know our numbers and using them to make our decisions. And, you know, in farming, it is a business, even though it has all these other glorious romantic aspects to it. Um, the bottom line is you have to be able to um, support yourself and, um, and hopefully be able to do some of the other things you want to do in life and not just farm. <laughs> and, um, and so running, keeping track of those numbers and using those numbers to make um, 
business decisions in terms of, you know, what you grow, how much you grow, what you charge for it, um, how much labor force are you going to need to to do the things that you, you know, grow the things that you want to grow. Um, what kind of pricing structure can you offer your customers? All those things come down to information that you need to gather over years of, you know, over your years of experience. And, um, you know, it's hard when you first get started because you don't have any of that data and you have to create it and keep track of it. But you can, there's some starting points from other farms and businesses that you can use as a, a guide to kind of benchmark. And then from there, collect your own data to understand what your business can actually do. And we did a lot of that pretty intensively early on, and that helped us make a lot of decisions. We still do it, but not at the same level of detail as we used to once we understood our growing systems and what was making sense for us and what wasn't. And so in those conversations that I have with restaurants, like I said, there's certain things that I'll say, no, I can't grow that because I know my numbers aren't going to support that being a profitable crop for me. And, um, or I'd have to charge so much for it. It wouldn't make sense for the restaurant, you know? (laughs) And so there's this partnership. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this partnership in terms of, you know, here's things that we know, like as a farmer presenting to the restaurant, or the chef or the buyer at the store, I'd say, here's the things that we know that we can grow successfully. Like we've, we've done it, you know, well, we know what our quality can be. We know what our pricing structure needs to be. Um, And this is the, you know, the volume that we can do it at. Is there some way in that you can pick a few of those things that we know we're super efficient at and commit to some volume of purchasing on a regular basis so that we can grow for you with some understanding that that product is going to go off the farm at a price level that we know works. And if that, and and that's a conversation of back and forth and they might say, Oh, well, we can't, you know, it doesn't make sense for our, our food costs to buy it at that. Like, you know, we can't buy onions at that, but we could buy the carrots at this, you know? And so you have that kind of conversation of, okay, you know, you've got some commitment from the buyers as to what they're, even though it might not be written, it's a verbal commitment, but you have an understanding of what, they can afford and put into their system and you have the information to provide to them as to what you can grow and um, provide at what price levels that will work um, for them. And that's where the partnership kind of meets this, makes this nice um, base of for growth from there. So once I have that understanding and that um, relationship with a partner, then I can branch off on some of those other things that maybe aren't quite as profitable, but are fun or kind of keep it interesting um, for both of us um, or really help them present something at their store or their restaurant that they're trying to do. And, um, and that's where we can kind of make that nice synergy happen as long as we've covered sort of that base of, you know, sort of mutual purchasing and providing um, that makes sense for both our businesses. What's next for you? Like, is there something that you want to grow that you haven't done before or are you good? Like, this is the way you want it to be. Is there any, you know, what's, what's next for you? Hmm. Yeah, we used to do more on-farm events. Um, We've kind of steered away from that in the last year. Well, COVID kind of nailed that. And then we've steered away in the last few years as we really focused on our production systems. And so we've, over the last few years, I would say fine-tuned and streamlined our production to a point where our workload has become a lot more manageable than it used to be. And um, our systems are more straightforward for our crew. And 
And that's, that's sort of, that's our goal of the next few years, just kind of continue that fine tuning process. And um, the farm has been able to maintain profitability well. And so, and that's of course a goal too. Um, I have one child in college and another one heading that way. So I'm hoping I can help support them in their, um, their college endeavors if that's they choose to do. And, um, and so um, we're, we're sort of, I guess I wouldn't say we're coasting. It's still a lot of hard work, but we've done a lot of the building and, and shaping and developing of the business. And now we're, um, you know, trying to keep it in its best form over the next decade or so. And at that point, then we're thinking about retirement and transition. Um, I turned 50 this year, so I'm hoping I don't have to work until I'm 75. <laughs> so, not that I wouldn't do something, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, hoping I don't have, I'm hoping I don't have to full-time farm until then. So I got to make an exit plan and uh, I got to, you know, start thinking about that soon um, as, we, as we move forward here. I have, I have just a couple more questions for you and these are more, um, these are just fun questions. I wanted to just, it's kind of fun to just ask um, folks about them. And so since you farm and grow things and, you know, is there some, is there one vegetable or something that you always, that you like really want to do well, but you're just, it's kind of like your white whale, you know, like I want to grow artichokes, but you know, (laughs) that you keep trying at. Yeah. Well, I don't feel like any some one year like it's your favorite. Thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I do know what you mean. I mean, there are so there's years where I'm like, oh yeah, awesome. I I got that. I I figured that out. And then the next year it tanks, and I'm like, what the heck? I was like, I thought I had that figured out, you know. And so there's those. Um, <laughs> I would I would say hoop house cucumbers is my biggest challenge. That you know the years when everything like all the crops overlap at the right times, and I don't have huge surplus, or I don't have too much, uh, you know, lacking of, of product. And, um, you know, like those years, I'm like, Oh, well, I, I figured this out. And then the next year will come up and it'll all be different. So that's, it's, that's my nemesis at the moment is it's always my, something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, I mean, I love growing House cucumbers. cucumbers. Yeah. Yeah. Next, this year, the plants are like, they're super fussy and, but, and, but they're, they produce a huge amount of crop in a shorter period of time. And so you just have to like, keep them happy and if you mess up one thing it's like they don't let you forget about it (laughs) (laughs) so okay so next if um we opened up your if you have a phone or your playlist what would be on your playlist what's what are you listening to music wise right now that's funny you would ask that i hardly listen to music at all um my my rest my family thinks (laughs) I don't know what it is. When I have quiet time, I like silence. And, uh, you know, not to say that I don't listen to music, but um, I still listen to the stuff from when I was growing up and listening to a lot of music. So it's all the stuff from the 80s and 90s. That's what I listen to. <laughs> so your classic rock. There and you go. Stuff like that. So And so outside of where you live, do you have a favorite place to visit in Vermont? I would say one of my favorite places that I spend a lot of time on, as much as I can get there, is... Um, is some of the trails on Mount Mansfield. Just, I'm, you know, we're only 15 minutes away from the trailheads to the mountain on the Underhill side. And when I have a, a free couple hours and I can run away, that's where I usually go to just hike up a trail and get in the mountains. And it's not any particular trail or place. It's just getting up in the, in the woods for a little bit 
that's that's my favorite place to be when I'm not farming. Being outside. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, last two questions. Besides maple syrup, what Vermont ingredient is always in your refrigerator? Oh, butter and like Vermont dairy products of all kinds, cheese, butter, yogurt, milk. Well, on that same note of dairy, do you have a favorite creamy flavor or twist? Oh, it's maple, of course. Of course, a classic. (laughs) Okay, well, that's the end of our little conversation. Thank you so much for chatting. The Dig in Vermont podcast is a production of Vermont Fresh Network with funding provided by the Vermont Agency of Agriculture, Food and Markets and the Working Lands Enterprise Board. This podcast is produced by Tara Pereira and Jesse Hoing and edited by Armand Velasco and Caitlin McMurray. Learn more about Vermont Fresh Network, our members, our mission and our programs at vermontfresh.net. Thanks for listening.